Welcome. This is Karen Modakaitis, and you're listening to How She Really Does It, the place where inspiration and possibility meet on KDRT 95.7 FM. All right, so Michelle's going to be coming on my show today, and a lot of our values line up. We're going to be talking about, you know, adrenaline and big moments and breakthroughs. And some of this has from a conversation that we had off the air about Mark McCluskey's book faster, higher, stronger. And he's actually going to be a guest. He's going to be coming on um, in an upcoming interview. But so here we talk about, you know, this chasing the magic bullet, looking for transformation, and what does it mean in the breakthroughs and the big moment. Let me know what nuggets of information come your way from this conversation with Michelle. Hello and welcome back to my conversation with my guest co-host, Michelle Woodward. She's an executive coach and a brilliant woman. And uh, so I'm very excited to have these conversations where you get to be a part of them and hear what we talk about. Uh, we're going to today talk about breakthroughs and that search for the big moments or otherwise known as chasing the magic bullet. Michelle, hello today. <laughs> hello. Oh, and of course now... <laughs> No, the dogs are barking, but you know, I think what would be really great is if we just have one entire show where all you do is introduce me and say lovely things, because that would be, I think that would be radio worth listening to, if you ask me. Um, yeah, I am. I think the peak moment thing is it's so it's so fascinating on so many levels. I mean, is it possible to live a life in sustained peak moments? What do you think? Sustained peak moments? I think that's exhausting. Yeah. I think, I think, you know, we, we have now what's called, you know, adrenal fatigue syndrome, right? But it's that we deprive, we deplete our bodies, organ reserves for those moments we do need to have that adrenaline going through. But we've created with all this extra stress, worry, this, you know, need for those big moments because then it's going to be meaningful and impactful. So I think it's exhausting. What do you think? You know, um, when you bake, uh, when you bake something, when you bake chocolate chip cookies, you know, you put in the flour, you put in whole wheat flour because you're a really good person. If you're going to eat flour, you're going to eat whole wheat flour. You put in flour and you put in sugar and you also put in salt because whenever you bake um, sweet things, you always put in salt to enhance the sweetness. So I feel like in life, if you try to live only with the sweetness, you're actually never going to really have total sweetness because you do need a little bit of the salt to really bring it out. So in other words, I think that we, we really benefit when we have high experiences that we can say, wow, this is awesome. This is a really high experience. And then kind of valley experiences because the next time we're at a peak, it feels so much sweeter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like if you ate ice cream every single meal, you you would start to dull your senses. You wouldn't be able to notice the effects of the sugar, right? And But when you can have ice cream every so often or whatever it may be, not every single meal, you're going to be more sensitized to it. And that's what it sounds like you're saying about this, these big moments. Yeah. 
Yeah. And you know what? It's, I was talking with my cousin. I have a cousin visiting me and we were talking about uh, karma. So I'm sure that you sit around and talk about karma with your cousins too. Am I right about that? <laughs> no. It's not, no, you're talking about, we've known each other, you know, forever. And we, we were talking about how when you just show up every day and you're in alignment with your values and your priorities and you know who you are and you feel comfortable in your skin and you show up every day and you do what needs to get done, great opportunities present themselves. If you wake up every day and you, you're like frantically seeking these peak big things, they actually elude you. Because I do think what kind of happens is it's that you don't realize how big something is until you're right in the middle of it. Yeah, that's a really good point. Right. And and isn't it sometimes that you don't think like, oh, that's not going to be big enough. So I'm not going to go do it because there's not that guarantee. But if you kept showing up, maybe it could be big. Right. Maybe you're going to. I mean, and I think about this with sports teams. Right. If you, you just never. I mean, the Giants are kind of an example of that. They weren't the best team in the in the major leagues this year. No, they were not. <laughs> Right. But they just kept playing calm and steady and they wound up winning the World Series. They played what they, you know, I'm a baseball junkie, but what they played is they played small ball. You know, what, what's happened in baseball is that everybody goes, and this is probably a great metaphor for our conversation, everybody goes for the big ooh-ah home run. Mm-hmm. You know, the home run that, that jacks out of the park, you know, that in, in San Francisco goes right into the water, which I have to say Bryce Harper from the Washington Nationals did that this year, but it's, it's, that's not the way you, you actually win the world series. You win the world series by the first game that you play in April, you play with the same level of consistency and the same openness to learning what works as you do that last game in September that sets you up for the playoffs. You know, you, you're, you're, you're still working on getting the runner to first base advancing the runner at second base, having the batter hit a, a double so that the batter at second, the runner at second base comes in and scores. That's how you win a baseball game. And it's like the old tortoise and the hare. You know, I, mm-hmm. I wrote a blog post about this a couple of years ago that people remember. You know, the tortoise and the hare, if the hare is like a showboating, strutting big cheese who's, you know, all the little girl bunnies are falling all over. But meanwhile, the tortoise is one foot in front of the other, getting what needs to be done, done. And who wins the race? The tortoise. But you don't have a reality show about the tortoise. You know, you have a reality show about the ostentatious hare. Mm -hmm. And it's those constant heightened moments that we see. And then we mistakenly think that's how real life's supposed to be lived. Right. You know, it's it's so interesting because as you, you know, talked about baseball and I thought about like swimming in the Olympics or I think about, you know, this adrenaline push and or the valleys, right? And the thing that keeps coming back to my mind is how can you stay grounded and and realize that it's those small things, like a lot of things that I've been saying this fall is small things matter, small things matter, getting to first base, right? Um, getting to second base. And then in swimming, it's, you know, when you're at the Olympics, the swimmers that can walk in those doors and do really well, they realize that this is just another swim meet. It's water, right? If they try to go, oh my gosh, you know, there are some people that actually like those big moments and rising to them. 
And then there's some people that like to sing Christmas songs before they get up on the blocks or maybe before they go hit a ball. Um, so everybody has their thing, but what is it that can help you get grounded so that you can really um, show up and do your work every day? Because, And that's why I like, I'm starting to become, well, how, how am I going to say this? I've always been a fan, Michelle, of baseball books, but I'm kind of like a fake fan because I only watch like in the end of the end of the year. If my husband's watching, I'll watch the playoffs. But I think this next year, I'm going to give myself permission because I love the stories of baseball and I love the values of base baseball. They really resonate with me. And so this year, my commitment or in 2015 is to be able to watch a full season of baseball, not every game. Like I don't have to watch every game. And I think that's one of the reasons I stayed away because I would get overwhelmed with all the games. But I love the the day in, day out. It's like, okay, here's another game. Here's another opportunity at bat. Here's another opportunity in the outfield. And and I make mistakes, but what can I do better next time? And isn't that pretty symbolic of life, of what happens? Exactly. And, you know, one of the things I think I love about baseball is, because I'm a fact finder, I love the statistics about baseball. And, you know, the best, the best uh, hitter in the history of baseball struck out twice every time for every three times he was at bat he struck out twice the the highest Ty Cobb and his lifetime batting average was like uh I don't know what it, exactly what it is somebody knows exactly what it is but it's like um you know he's batting 350 for his career mm-hmm. that's the highest ever so one thing I love about baseball is that that you can have the best players in the game you Madison Bumgarner you know mm-hmm. from the Giants and and he's batting, you know, batting a hundred. You know what I mean? But yeah. he's uh, he's not known for his bat, but he can get up there and fail, and still be a winner. I mean, I think this is the idea. Sometimes people think about a peak experience is that if I have a peak experience, then I'm winning, mm-hmm. right? And I'm I'm a winner. Mm-hmm. I'm standing on the medal podium. I'm the winner. But really, to me, peak experiences are about growth and learning. Like for me, my own peak experiences, I'm reading the most fascinating book. It's a book of fiction. It's called Lila uh, by the brilliant, gifted uh, writer Marilyn Robinson. And it's nominated for the National Book Award this year. It's, it's a brilliant book. Every time I open that book up, um, it feels like a peak experience for me because not only is the language beautiful and the way she's, you know, bringing this story to life, but as a writer... I'm also learning from the choices she's making as a writer. And so I feel like this is like, this is as close to a perfect book as I've read in a very long time. And so for me, it's like, it's, it's such a monumental thing. It's really a small story, but it's a monumental book. And I'm having a peak experience because I'm, I'm participating in this and I'm learning and I'm growing because of reading it. Mm-hmm. Well, and doesn't that allow you to be, I mean, what comes first? Is it the grounding or being a part of that experience and then you get grounded? I don't know. I mean, that's sort of one of those chicken and egg things. Mm -hmm. I don't really know. I just, and I don't really question it. It's just, you know, that experience, the experience of a feeling, the wow, you know, so the wow doesn't have to be, you know, taking a selfie with Kim Kardashian, (laughs) you know, the wow can be the fact that I asked my dog to sit and my dog sat. That's a pretty big wow in my book. Mm-hmm. You know, the wow of sitting. Uh, last night I went to dinner with five people. There were five of us at the table. 
and I've known all each of them for 30 years. Wow. 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 That was a wow experience. And it was anybody walking by would not say, wow, they're having a wow experience. They would say they're having a lot of fun and there's seems to be a lot of laughing going on among that group. And how much wine are they drinking? Really? <laughs> there was that. I'm just saying there was that. But you know what I'm saying? So you might think that a peak experience means you go to a, you know, a fancy spa and meet with a shaman and, you know, have some sort of break mystical breakthrough experience. But I guess I'm suggesting you can have those, those kind of wow moments anytime you allow them. Yeah, it, it's really about being in that observer place where you can be aware of what's going on and to check in and notice like, this is, this is really cool. Um, last week, last weekend on Halloween, my daughter wanted to have a little party, like a really little party. And it, the party was really about just watching a movie, right? And having a few friends. And this was a very courageous action for her to take. And so we worked on some boundaries for her with friends and stuff. And how did she go about doing this? And, uh, and we wound up eating pizza and I sat out in the kitchen with them and we were laughing and it was really a lot of fun. And most of these kids I've known since they were really little and it was fun and we were laughing. And the thing that was so great about these friends is that it was really safe, right? They could be really who they are and they just own it and they're laughing. And I was like, wow. And I was thinking about when I was 14 and not that, not feeling very safe and, and, you know, trying to be something, hustle for my own worthiness and how these kids were different. And at one point I looked at them right before they went off to go watch some movie. And I looked at them and I said, you guys, this is as good as it gets. Like any party that you go to in high school and there's drugs or alcohol will not be as fun as this because you're getting to connect and you have a place to belong, you know? And then over the course of the weekend, I was talking to several different parents whose kids were there. And just to be able to have that pointed out of this is, you know, they're going to have to go through the experience, right? Because I'm just some, you know, middle-aged person, wah, wah. But for them to hear that, like, this is a great experience. It doesn't have to be this outlandish thing that they may see on TV or the cover of the magazine or a story that they hear. They just giving permission that they really can like this and enjoy it. So I thought that was really important. You know, it's funny. I live in Washington, D.C., where, um, you know, there you, you could go out every night of the week to some sort of, you know, black tie event or some sort of, you know, fancy reception with congressmen, senators you know, it's very easy to get into that milieu. And last night, I one of the people at dinner is was this 87-year-old woman who, um, for 30 years, I've been going to parties that she's thrown. And one of the best parties I ever went to was um, at her house. It was a Saturday afternoon. She put eight-foot-long banquet tables out in her garden, um, newspapers over the top, Everybody had Subway sandwiches, which were rolled up. I mean, and this is, you know, a beautiful home. Um, and I sat, I sat there, I picked my Subway sandwich and I got my, my can of soda. And I sat next to this gentleman and I looked at his, he had this very distinctive ring on his finger. And I realized he had the seal of Washington. And then I realized that he had been introduced to me as Mr. Washington. And sure enough, he was John Washington. He was a descendant of the Washington family. And here we are in a garden eating Subway sandwiches. <laughs> and then the dessert was popsicles. But what I learned from Mary 
is that when you get the right people together and you, you give them everything they need to have a wonderful time, they will have a wonderful time. It mm-hmm. wasn't about silverware or place settings or fancy. It was about being able to sit in a garden on a beautiful day with interesting people and talk, you know? Yeah. That, I mean, having that ability to have connection, right? We don't need to have a certain kind of china or to have this catered event. It's about having that space so that we can build connection. Isn't that it? Exactly right. So I subsequently had a party, which then went down somewhat in history among like four people. But it was, um, I invited people over and we had Chinese food mm-hmm. in my dining room because I wanted to kind of show people, you know, we, we don't entertain because we think we need to clean the house from top to the bottom and we need to, it needs to be fancy and it needs to have you know, you need to be proper and just so. And really what you need to have, which I learned from Mary, is you just need to have great people enjoying themselves like you learned with the, the girls at the party. Mm-hmm. And, and knowing that, like with my daughter, she wanted it to be small, right? Her, her measurement of success was small. Whereas a friend of hers who had a different party, she had a different measurement of success. She wanted a lot of people there, right? And knowing what, what is really important to you and in executing it that way, neither one was wrong. It's about, but where's your capacity, your individual capacity? Right. Something else I want to touch on you spoke about is this idea of like going and working with a shaman or, you know, going to a workshop or a retreat. And I remember like um, I used to really have a lot of resistance to the word transformation because the I was I used to be very transactional with it. Like, oh, transformation. It's like you walk into a room and it's dark and you turn on the light and now you see light. Right. So you go to a workshop or a retreat or you go to a talk or you, you know, whatever. And you think that, oh, my gosh, I'm going to come away and I'm a different person or you go to a conference. But maybe you've learned stuff and some nuggets, but it's really about how do you practice consistently and show up? Or at least that's what I found. And I don't know about you, but I know sometimes with my clients when they really want that instant transformation or they that that big thing to happen, that that. That desire that which can usually will create graspiness will, will tend to slow their progress. Do you see that happening? Yes. Yeah, so this little story is popping up. This, this woman who is fantastic um, decided to do a half day strategy session with me. And because she couldn't come here and, you know, we did it over the phone. So we split it up. We did it like 90 minutes one day and then we had a day off and 90 minutes the next day. <clears throat> and in my half-day strategy sessions, I have a process. You know, I have uh, steps to move through. And, you know, we make the agreement at the outset of what would like, what what would the takeaway be? What will success look like? And then we use, the, use this process to drive to the success. And at the very end of the second day, I could sense even on the phone that her energy was sort of like not there. And I sort of said, I sense your energy is not there. And she goes, well... I mean, this has been great and all, but I kind of was hoping for an aha moment. <laughs> and my heart sank because I kind of thought, oh, oh, I didn't realize that's what, oh, okay. You know, can I pull it out in the next 30 seconds? Yippee. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I really, I kind of gathered myself and I looked at my notes and I looked at what we'd done and I said, so, okay, so it's the, let's just recap. You know, we've, you've done this and you've decided to do this and now you understand this. And you have these, this is your action plan. 
and this is your timeline. And I said, so that kind of sounds like a lot of aha moments to me. And there was a pause and she said, yeah, you know, I guess I just wasn't thinking about it that way. I kind of wanted one big aha moment. Mm -hmm. And I've always felt subsequent to that, that there was some misalignment because I, I was not aware and not that I don't think I could have generated it, but you know what I mean? It was like sort of that really interesting thought that it doesn't count if there's not some sort of big aha moment. It was weird. Why, so why do you think we search for these like big aha moments? Um, maybe it feels like a release. Maybe we think we should. I don't know. What do you think? I think, especially when it like it comes to like working with you or myself, right? Um, it can be a, a, a justification on the value, the money spent, the time spent. Um, I think there's also the idea of, oh, this is how it's done. This is what successful people do. They have, you know, like Oprah will say, oh, this is my aha moment. Um, but I, you know, and, and I think it's, I, I think some of it's cultural, but I, I think it's, it goes back to that transactional mindset of, well, if I, if I paid this or if I went here, I should have this, you know, big takeaway. And, you know, yesterday I was cooking lunch and I called up a friend of mine real quickly. And we were just talking and he has a podcast and we were talking real quick. We only talked for like 15 minutes and just talking to him. Like I just called just to connect and just talking to him. We were talking about some stuff. And all of a sudden I was like, oh my gosh, I had this, re you know, realization. And it, and so I wasn't going there with the intent of having an aha moment, but in 15 minutes I walked away with three. Mm. Right. And I think that is different than when I've gone in with the intention of I'm going to call them and they're going to give me these answers. Right. When I was seeking I probably had the answers probably came, but I think that idea of seeking and then I would discount, I couldn't receive anyways. Mm -hmm. um, so, so I think it becomes, I, so I do think there's that transactional thing that we have to have it so that it's now therefore worthwhile instead of realizing from, you know, it's about what seeds can I plant? Mm -hmm. Right. And maybe that is the thing is that, you know, in the Kardashianization of the world, you know, that it's it that everything has to be this big splashy for it to register. You know, maybe it's like we get numb to the joy of the little things. Mm -hmm. But mindfulness kind of asks us to be present with the, the little things. And then our presence, our focus on that makes them bigger. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, it's, it's something like I've always heard people that work in TV and movies, right? They see behind the smoke in the mirrors. And, you know, my experience with that would be coming to more in athletics and uh, I just remember when I got to London and, you know, it's so funny because in 2011, when I heard of somebody going to London as a spectator, I was like, wow. And I, but I never thought I was going to be there in 2012. And then here I was in 2012 and not still without the expectation of getting tickets. And uh, when I finally did get a ticket and got into the Olympic Village and walking in and two things that occurred, one is, you know, climbing the four stories of stairs to get to my seat, to look down at a pool that looked like it was about three inches um, that's how high up I was. And then, you know, and all the excitement and the buzz. And then you finally sit down and, and after like five minutes, I'm like, Oh, this is just another swimming. And I had a little bit more to say to that than that, but we have to have clean radio. Um, cause I just realized like, Oh, here we go. It's the 400 freestyle. And, uh, there's a lot of, even though it's the Olympics, when you're a spectator in the trials, there's a wide bandwidth of ability levels because of the way that the Olympics are done. Um, 
And I realized that. And then later walking around, you know, I started to realize what we see on TV and I call it NBC eyes, mm-hmm. right? Because what we see on TV and, and how it's pumped up and then the music and everything, you know, when you're, when you're on the ground floor of the Olympics, I mean, it's exciting, but it's not as pretty as like a Disneyland, but it's like a gravel roaded Disneyland. There's the big signs. You have to walk miles. There's a lot of people. There's some great excitement, energy. There's frustration. You know, there's long lines, but they don't have the music that's piped in. And, and it brings me back to like Disneyland. My husband hates this place. But uh, a couple of years ago, we went, we used to go two or three times a year and stuff. Um, but as my kids have gotten older, we've gone less. And um, my husband went and I was taking him to the airport because he had to get back to the university and um, before us. And so we were walking out like five in the morning. I'm barely awake, going to drive him to the airport. And all of a sudden he goes, fake bugs. I'm like, where? You know, thinking that there's going to be these like six foot fake bugs on the wall of the hotel. And he said, no, the music, they're piping in music. And I looked at him. I said, of course they are. This is Disneyland, right? (laughs) They create this experience and then they market it as the happiest place in the world. And it's not, you know, I've sat there and I've watched. It's not the happiest place. Parents are exhausted. You know, they're stressed out about the money they're spending. The kids are exhausted because they're trying to get in all these peak experiences in the most amount of time, right, to make the most bang for their money. And this is a sweeping generalization, I realize. But, you know, this is kind of the theme that I, as I sit there and I watch. Um, so it can be a fun place. You know, we've we've liked it. And I'm never going back with my husband again. Um because we can have more fun without him. And I think he's happy with that. But, you know, when we think about what the experiences are supposed to be and and how they can be choreographed in kind of these more, um, I don't know if it's materialistic worlds or these more marketed worlds, Disneyland or t- television, then we think we have to keep recreating that. And the pressure that it puts on us, I think, again, it it makes us shrink, don't you think? You know, it's funny because I was thinking about my last visit and not to, I've been to Disneyland, but, you know, because I live on this coast, the East Coast, we go to Disney World. And I was thinking about the last visit that uh, I went to. My daughter and I went together, I probably now three years ago, maybe four years ago. And it was very last minute because her spring break plans fell through. And she turned to me, tears in her eyes, and said, I, I don't have anywhere to go for spring break. She was supposed to go with somebody who changed the plans at the last minute. And so I looked at her and I said, let's go to Disney World. And I, I booked a trip. I, I mean, you know, I used points and we did all that. But, but our goal was not to have peak experiences. Our goal, we agreed, <laughs> this was kind of very last minute, we were just going to run around and be crazy people and have fun. And so we, we literally, I think we had two or only two or three days and we went to, we ran to Epcot and we laughed about being in Epcot. And if there was a long line, we just went, kept going past it. You know, we, we just totally did it on our turns, on Mm -hmm. our terms and it turned out to be the best trip ever. Isn't that interesting? Mm-hmm. So when you try to shape something to your idea of what a peak experience is, it's probably not going to be a peak experience. But if you kind of just say, what the hell? Let's see what happens here. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of fun. Well, why were you going? What because was- I, didn't, I didn't want her to be feel like, um, you know, it was spring break and she was just sitting at home doing nothing. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, I literally canceled all my client appointments mm-hmm. uh, and left my my teenage son here, you know, who didn't want to go with the dogs. Mm-hmm. And we got on a plane and we went. Mm-hmm. So it was it was about supporting your daughter and connecting right. with her. That's exactly right. And so exactly. isn't, isn't that in some ways the peak experience? Right. Right. And it's, yeah. And it, it and it's that, and how can you show up? And it's not about, oh, we took her to Disneyland, and aren't you just so fortunate? It's that, hey, my daughter had this hole, and we went and connected, and we went and did this, and we had a great time. And then the playground was Disney World. Right. But it right, wasn't exactly. it wasn't the thing that made us. It wasn't the, it's like that idea of the external versus the internal, right? right. The internal was the connection of you two being supported in this external world where you can go and play and be in a playground. And we went to, we went to, uh, so this is not interesting to anybody but me, but we went to um, Universal Studios and saw the Blue Man Group. Uh-huh. And for whatever reason, as we were come, as we were sitting there waiting for the show to start, I don't know if you've ever seen the Blue Man Group, the producer came up to us and said, would you mind being part of the show? And like, we looked at each other and said, we'd love to be part of the Blue Man Group show. <laughs> and so... I don't, it, they always have the same thing, but there's always a family or people that come in late mm-hmm. and the, the blue men sort of make fun of them. Mm-hmm. And, and that was us. <laughs> and we laughed so hard that we were the late comers for the blue man group. Cause we'd seen the blue man group before. And it was that kind of thing. You could never plan that. I couldn't mm-hmm. have slipped somebody 40 bucks and said, make us the late comers, mm-hmm. you know, but it, it happened. Which is kind of goes back to that other thing that I was saying is that when you seek it, it's elusive. Mm-hmm. When you allow it, it shows up. You know, and I think about, um, I'm trying to figure out how I can be discreet about this. Like, uh, oh, I was, don't be discreet. It's just me. I know, <laughs> but it's not totally my story to tell. Oh, so, okay. um, you know, I I went on a trip in the past year and um and I went with kind of like you. It was like, well, the intention of supporting and connecting. And um a friend of mine who went on this trip was looking for I'm not sure, not and it wasn't for me, I was supporting her in this environment, but was looking for something, I think validation or something. And so our two experiences were so different as we went into this place and you know, all that it means culturally to people. And uh um and I walked away from there and it was like, oh, great. I made some great, I met some great people and it was fun and it was exciting and I was fine. And while the, my friend walked away with tremendous loss mm. because she was looking for the external to validate her where, and, and part of it, I mean, to her fairness, I'd been there before and I knew kind of what had gone on. And so, and I was really clear with my intentions. I was going to connect with my friend and going for support, right? To support mm. her. Um, I knew going there wasn't going to change my life. I wasn't going to come out a different person. Now I got to meet incredible people, which was something that I hadn't expected. Right. And I knew that I would be spending time with my friends. So whatever we did in this great city didn't really matter because we were going to be together. And so, and I, but I think about how there were times that I would walk into things thinking again, whether it's a workshop, a place or, you know, meeting somebody I really admired and it falling short because I think what I was doing, I mean, I would know this, I was hustling for my own worthiness, right? And I was using that external experience, chasing that magic bullet to then validate me that I was okay versus being okay. And then looking at, 
you know, what can I learn from this? Like you had talked about, or, you know, what connection can I build from this? Um, so I, I do think sometimes managing those expectations that we have, um, can be really helpful. And knowing from the outset, you know, what I have observed, uh, over the years is sometimes people are at a place with their life or their work where they feel a little frantic, you know, maybe the revenue is not flowing the way they wanted want it to flow. Maybe the opportunities aren't coming the way they thought or they bought into the idea that the opportunities would be flowing. So they get a little bit desperate. So they put a, some money together to go to some big conference that everybody's buzzing about and that they've heard for years that if you go to this thing or you go work with this guru or this teacher, you know, it's going to dramatically change your life. And so this, the, the expectations are super high mm-hmm. and, and almost nothing is going to meet those expectations because ultimately it's not an external um what's required is not an external fix it's an internal realignment mm-hmm. you know an internal realignment around things like their values around their priorities around playing to their strengths around not hanging with with shoulds you know mm-hmm. with thinking i should be i should be a certain way they should be a certain way this should be a certain way you know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. like, it is disappointing for people. And uh, yeah, I, it's really frustrating to watch it because I think, as you know, I don't like unnecessary suffering. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so I, and I see people, you know, set themselves up for this unnecessary su- suffering where if they could just spend five minutes before they go and say, why am I going? Mm-hmm. Even five minutes before they send their money. Why am I going? What am I hoping to get out of this? Mm-hmm. Is this something I can give myself? Mm-hmm. Whatever I'm looking for, can I give it to myself? And if so, don't go. Mm-hmm. Now, those are great questions. I like to ask, you know, can I live it? So I may go learn it, but can I live it? Because I'm a great learner, but then how do I put it into practice? Well, I create space in my life to practice it and to live it. Or the other thing I like to remind myself, because, you know, I was one of those mad chasing magic bullock seekers, right? Um is what nuggets can I take away from this? So instead of thinking like if I went and bought a book and, oh, this book's going to change my life, instead of that, it was, you know, what are a few nuggets that that resonate with me and either provide me with evidence that, yes, this this really resonates with me or that, hey, here's a nugget here that maybe I'd be interested in trying and implementing in my life instead of thinking I need to follow every single word of this book or of this program or of this workshop. So that's, those are the things that help me stay grounded. Um, and, and then the belief and understanding now of how transformation really takes place. Like I'm willing to talk about that word now, but for a long time I was like, I hate that word, right? Because I used to think it doesn't happen fast enough. Mm-hmm. Hey, well, so what do you think the role of adrenaline and, and the other, you know, um, cortisol, oxytocin, all the different sort of you know, things that happen in our body when we have these kind of big experiences. What do you think the role of that is? You mean what happens in our body? Why do we seek peak experiences? As, do we seek them as a result of those kind of things coursing through our, our blood? I think it goes back to that hustle for worthiness. That's what I think. It's like, oh, you know, and you've got this energy and it's like, I, I can do this and let me show you how grand I am, Right. Um, and then not realizing what it's doing. Like I didn't realize what it was doing internally to my body and how it was depleting. Um, 
but I, I, I think there's that, there's that energy and you feel like you can justify, Hey, look, I'm so productive, right? I can master this to-do list. I can do all these great things. We're always, you know, and I think culturally we are set up to believe that it's those adrenaline moments, right? Are you the valedictorian? Are you, you know, one of the top athletes at the high school who signed a national letter of intent? I mean, that gets programmed from the very beginning. Are you in the gifted program as, you know, in fourth grade? And so we keep getting, like, there's that pressure for achievement. And I think that a lot of times is fueled by the adrenaline. Mm -hmm. Last summer I was gone. I was in Portland um, with one of our good friends, Renee, and uh, we had this thing called the double header. My husband, he took it from baseball and we had two dual meets, one in the morning and then one back in the afternoon. And it's one of the favorite days of the kids. And it's one of the least favorite days of the parents because it's long. We get on the pool deck at like 645. Most of the kids get out of there probably about two and then they come back about 445 and then we're done around between nine and 10 at night. And, um, you know, I always say at pools, electricity, water, just don't really work out too well. And so, you know, there's a lot of electronics that run the timing systems and you're dealing with scoreboards and buttons and exhausted people. And so it's not a good mix. It's always the perfect storm. And when I came back, a lot of people had to do their venting with me and, you know, tell me about all these things. And um, I realized that that's just that situation norm, even at the Olympic trials where they have the best equipment, they still have problems. And then they have the pressure of, you know, television and getting the right timing of television with the commercial breaks when it's live. And, um, but then one of the things that some people had said is, well, Pete was so cavalier. He was so calm. You know, he wasn't like running around frantic. And, and I, I thought that was so interesting because what I learned um, or what reaffirmed some of what I, what I know or I believe I know is that people think that when you're in a crisis, you need to really amplify. And sometimes when you're leading a big group and then are tired and weary as a leader, it's about not going to that adrenaline and how can you keep things calm, right? But sometimes people will prove their worthiness by like, oh, see, we have this crisis and I'm working so hard and dead, you know, and all of that. And I know I've done that. And instead of just how can I stay calm and how can I move through this? I know when I go through crisis, I'm pretty good about staying calm. That's probably a big strength of mine. Um, but some people can perceive that as you're not, you know, why aren't you firing and why aren't you, you know, going crazy and trying to figure this all out? I mean, sometimes the computer system just doesn't work. It decides it's done for the day. Yeah. And I think that there's a lot of people who confuse like drama with, with, uh, passion, mm-hmm. you know, they, they, they mistake that kind of, uh, tumult for actually meaning something. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's just a way for people to discharge energy that they don't know what to do about. So they, they flip out because flip out, flipping out feels really good, mm-hmm. you know, and instead of like, I'm also extremely calm under pressure, but that is something that I, I really refined when I worked at the White House because if you've got the president of the United States in a holding room right behind you and the PA system is out and you freak out, you know what they do? They take you away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, they, and you, you cannot lose focus by, by flipping out. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, so, so I think sometimes people confuse, you know, this feels like a peak experience, ergo, it must be a peak experience. No, it's just drama. Mm-hmm. And drama can feel like, it's like junk food. Mm-hmm. It feels really awesome, 
when you're in the moment, and then later you kind of have a bellyache. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a lot of wasted energy, and you're not doing better work. So that, that can be the mistake about the adrenaline is we let it fire, and it's not helping us move forward. We're just chasing our tail, but we're saying, hey, look, I'm so busy. I'm, so, I'm working so hard. I'm worthy, but we're not moving forward. But at the same time, there are these moments of, of, of sheer creativity that come when your back is against the wall and you've got to figure out a solution. You know, you think about a painter or, or an, a writer or, or really anybody, like who invented peach salsa, right? I mean, I really want to know the answer to that because somebody probably was in some situation where they thought, I have got to have salsa for this next, you know, meal, this next restaurant meal that I'm preparing and I don't have any t- enough tomatoes. What if I put peaches in there? And boom, you've got this really creative solution. Um, so I do think sometimes pressure can, or, or that kind of thing can really advance creativity. But I think you have to know how to, you know, have to know how you react. And you have to know, is it the kind of pressure that is going to allow me to be my best? Or is it the kind of pressure that's going to cripple me? You know, I, I go back to like, where are you rooted in? Because I think adrenaline, like when you're, t- as you're giving that example, right? There are definitely times when, um, you know, managing crisis, I'm sure I go to my adrenaline, but I stay really calm and I'm very focused and I'm very deliberate with how I move through that crisis. And I know that, you know, afterwards there's been a very big depletion of energy because, you know, it's been kind of all hands on deck. Um, but I'm grounded when I take go there versus when, um, I'm rooted in more graspiness or shame. When I when I go into the adrenaline, it's very drama inducing. So I think in terms of where are we rooted when we take our action, and how you know that action piece can look the same in a sense, but it's it's that underneath stuff. What's going on internally? What's the why? What's going on internally? That's and then looking at what are the results of that. That's what I think. I think you're right. Um. Before we wrap up, I want to talk about um, execution of what we know to be true and why that's important versus, you know, chasing the magic bullet. Well, I think sometimes we resist executing that which we know is true because we, we second guess ourselves. Who am I to think this is true? You know, I, I was actually working with a client this morning. I'm not going to divulge a lot of the information because this client is maybe listening, but uh, <laughs> but... This is a wonderful client who I absolutely adore, who through no fault of her own, um, there was a big reorganization. She'd been in her senior executive role for 14 years. And like a lot of companies in the the world today, um, when a company is looking to make savings, sometimes they look to their most highly paid employees for a long period of, who've been in their roles for a long period of time, and they let them go. Because, uh, you know, in a reorganization, they actually can replace that person with two other people at a much lower uh, pay and and have some cost savings. So this person, through no fault of her own after after 14 years, was, was out of a job. And what's haunted her is that maybe they were right to fire her. Oh. Right? So. And so. And even though, you know, calling back to all those years of success, you know, all those years of, of, you know, really making a difference in that organization, 
she can't get over this idea that maybe they were right to fire her because maybe she didn't know what she was doing. And it's that crisis of confidence. It's that, that feeling of unworthiness Mm -hmm. that I know that you know so well through the work of Brene Brown, Mm -hmm. your study of that work. That really is the thing that keeps people. They think if I take one more class, if I take one more, if I, if I, you know, pay $10,000 to one more guru, <laughs> you know, I'm going to, like, I, I recently had somebody, a master coach message me privately and say, I'm just about to say yes to a certain program. And I would like, you know, what do you think of this? And so I just sort of coached this person and the, the realized that this person was feeling in the, that moment, very unworthy of moving forward in this practice, in her, in this coaching practice. And what was, so what was getting in the way? Why, why the unworthiness? Because, because, you know, who am I to hold myself out as somebody who can do X, Y, Z? Mm-hmm. Who am I to hold myself out as somebody who can stand up and do a keynote speech and be paid, you know, $7,500? Mm-hmm. Who, who am I to say that this is what I'm worth being paid? Mm-hmm. That, I think people struggle with that. I mean, have you seen that? Oh, absolutely. And I think that's going to make a great next show for us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I think I, I do think people struggle with that. So we will definitely make another show about that. Um, and as so as we wrap, wrap up and we talk about, you know, the breakthroughs and big moments, I loved how you gave us that visual early in the in this conversation about, um, you know, the valleys and the peaks, right? And enjoying our peaks when we're up there. But then also when we're on those valleys, we don't need to, you know, like our dear friend Lori Foley likes to say, we don't need to pitch a tent and build a campfire, invite people along, right? We can be down in the, in the, in the valleys or in the swamplands. That would be more in the swamplands. And then we can still rise back up to the valleys again and look down at the, you know, or rise up to the peaks and look down at the valleys. And I, I think just being able to appreciate it all. So whether it's this, whether it can be the small moment of reading a book that just, really lights you up or spending time with your kids or going out to dinner with friends of 30 years or, you know, there's so many different things that we can do. You know, this morning I was at coffee with a girlfriend. It's one of my favorite things to do and, uh, and appreciating that. And then also having fun. Like when I was at the Olympics, it was like, wow, I'm here. And it was really cool, but also realizing it's the Olympics and this is just another gathering that people like to be a part of. Um, and, uh, and I'm no better of a person or worse of a person by being here. And I think that might be one of the important messages when we're trying to chase that magic bullet because um, I personally believe that we chase those magic bullets because, again, it goes back to, well, then once I get this, then I'll finally be okay. Mm -hmm. I'll finally be happy. But what we know (laughs) is that like with, you know, I know you do a lot with weight loss and that Mm -hmm. sort of thing. But I think, you know, the ability to stand in front of a mirror every single day Mm -hmm. And look at yourself naked and say, yeah, it's pretty good. Mm-hmm. That's, and it's the same thing with like peak experiences to say, yeah, this is pretty good. This right here, this moment, this is pretty good. Mm-hmm. And the next moment is going to be pretty good too. And the moment after that will be pretty good too. Mm-hmm. And then when you look back in hindsight, it's all like a wonderful, wonderful experience. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's, it's, yeah, it's a very pleasant experience. And to not 
Yeah. To be in that nice flowing experience is just a wonderful thing. So Michelle, thank you so much. And thank you for talking about this because I think this hopefully this is helpful for the listeners out there. And again, you know, thanks for your guys' emails and continue to send us emails and questions and we'll incorporate them into the show. So what do you think about chasing the magic bullet? I know, I mean, I can't tell you how many years I would go to the bookstores, one of my favorite places to be and come out with a stack of books thinking that again, this was going to change my life or go to the library or go do a program or a workshop. And what I now know, you know, and having gone through having gone through my own transformation as well as helping, you know, all of my clients go through it is that it's the small things. It's lots of little things that become big changes. So one of my personal mantras um, that I go around saying a lot is small things matter, small things matter. And though it becomes really, really important. And I invite you guys to look at what are the small things that really make a difference in your life and looking back at an experience where there was transformation or you were really grounded, what were those small things that helped you stay grounded? Um, and then one other thing that I've been noticing and I've been talking about lately is that when we are actually living our dream, you know, when uh, years ago, decades ago, when I wanted to live the life I currently had, I didn't know how to. I didn't know how. And I remember I had a mentor when I first started out this radio show and he had said, it's not about the how, it's about the why. And I kept trucking along and making my mistakes and trying to figure things out and getting frustrated and going into dead ends. And, you know, that's kind of difficult when you kind of run into these um, dead ends, even though if they're only a metaphor, when you're a person who really appreciates productivity and efficiency. And what I learned from that is those dead ends, those, those bumps in the road were actually things that helped me develop resilience. And that transformation can occur. It just doesn't happen overnight. And that and that's why I embrace, my clients know this, I always talk about how I'm a slow learner. I really learn things and it takes me time and that's not a correlation to my intelligence. I used to believe that to be intelligent, you had to get that information right now. And the more I've been able to give myself the space to let it percolate, to, um, to think about it, to continue to learn about it, to practice it, to reflect on it, the more grounded I get in it. And so that's why you hear me a lot of times say it's, we have to practice or what can I learn from this or reflecting on things. Um, and then you can live your dream. And what I mean by living the dream is, you know, there was one day I was, you know, kept going down these dead ends of my life, going down these dead ends, you know, and why isn't it happening the way I thought it was going to happen and getting really frustrated and being very critical. And cause I'm very good at that skill set. And, um, and then, you know, I don't know if it was months or a couple of years later, I lifted up my head and I was like, holy moly, that dream that I had, however many years before, I'm living it. I'm living that life that I always wanted. And so that idea of like practicing gratitude or really paying attention. And I see people, I work with clients who can struggle with that they are living their dream they just forgot what it was maybe a, a couple of decades ago and they had gotten to a point of success and they were continuously looking for what wasn't enough instead of also gathering the evidence of, hey, look at what I've accomplished or look at what I've learned or look at what I know now. And then 
What else do I want to grow at? Sometimes we think that we have to be that critic in order to continue to have growth, right? Otherwise, we're not going to strive. And if we're just too compassionate, we're just going to sit around and, you know, my favorite saying is eat bonbons and watch TV all day. But really, when we really have healthy striving is, and we want to grow and flourish, we, it's from place of compassion. So, you know, when we get to that point, you know, check in, are you living the dream that you thought you would be 10 or 20 years ago? Are you living the life that you wanted maybe five years ago? And if not, what can you do to make changes? You know, and the little things, not the big things, not I have to quit my job and, you know, sell my house and go live in, I don't know, someplace where there's no stuff because I need to be free of, you know, personal objects. It's like, how can you live your life? And what are the small changes that you can make over time to create the results that you want? Small things matter. And then some of you may remember some of the interviews I've done with Patty Dye. <clears throat> Excuse me. I've been talking a lot today. And uh, we talked about the ordinary, you know, living the ordinary or the extraordinary in the ordinary, right? And really appreciating that. So like sometimes, you know, I might be doing some mundane stuff in my life, but I just really have gotten into this practice of really loving the ordinary in my life. And it doesn't mean that there aren't great moments or there aren't exciting things or there aren't the fun things, you know, in those peak experiences that Michelle's talking about. And maybe, yes, it's going to Chicago and going to an Oprah taping or, you know, these different things that I get to do. But it's also, you know, having coffee with a friend or reading a great fiction book, which I got to do last week and I actually read two, um, or getting to talk to you here or re- reading an email that comes in from you. The ordinary and the extraordinary, these small moments, right? Every time I get an email from you in my inbox, whether it's asking a question or thanking or letting me know that this show matters to you, those small things keep this engine going on the show. And that's why I was able to do eight years of the radio show and over 400 episodes was because, because of you. You know, it was, there were, there were lots of hard days, lots of times and, you know, lots of me like, ah, I don't know if I could do this anymore. Right. But it kept, kept going because of you. So the small things can become big changes. And I often say that a lot um, with my clients, like small hinges can move big doors, right? We look for transformation in this one big, efficient, swooping, you know, hairy, audacious thing. But there's a lot of small things that lead to that. You know, I've seen phenomenal things happen. Like if you remember the story of Scott, my husband's Olympian. Yeah, I mean, he totally catapulted in the world of swimming. You know, prior to the trials in um, 2012, his highest you know, national level thing was second at junior nationals. And then he was an all American in college at the NC2As. So, and then all of a sudden he's breaking the, the Olympic record and he's the fastest American, um, you know, of all time at the Olympic trials. But there were lots of small things that happened that built up to that moment. Unfortunately, when we watch it, if you don't know the story behind the scenes, you see that moment and think, oh, well, that's great. He must have done something amazing. What was that special bullet, right? What was that magic bullet? What was it, his diet? Or what special training did he do instead of the small things over time? And so the same thing for you in your life. It's not about a magical like, oh, I just did this amazing thing in, uh, in I was going to say cooking, in cooking or parenting or, you know, in the workplace. But what are the small things over time that lead to the transformation of you 
of your culture, like, and it could be a workplace culture, your family culture, the ordinary in the, the extraordinary in the ordinary, I'll eventually get that right. So I invite you as I close out this show to think about, you know, being really honest, what kind of transformation are you looking for and what can you do to help ground yourself so that when you go into something that you're expecting some transformation, that it's, it's realistic, not that it can't be dreamer, right? But that it's realistic so that you can see what the possibilities are. You can meet the people or have the experience that you want to create, but really knowing your why can help you there. Thanks so much for listening. And, you know, I encourage you to subscribe to my weekly newsletter. I have the current show that always comes out every week. I write something that's just for the newsletter. And, um, and then I get a lot of, it's just, it ends up in your inbox. And then that's when it becomes really easy to hit reply and send me an email. And yes, I love to hear from you. And finally, one last uh, thing I'll say is one of the things that I could use from you, your help is going to iTunes and writing a review, a truthful review. If you love the show, and I know many of you do, you know, go in there and write it because it does help spread the show around. Um, and it can help if it's helped you, who else can it help? So I know there's a lot of great content. So if you go in, apparently the iTunes algorithm, when you share it or you write a review, it helps share the show some more. And so while we have listeners worldwide, and it's crazy when I look at um, the number of people that listen to the show, it's just another way to build our community so that we can do more good in the world. So thank you for listening. And there'll be more conversations with Michelle that I'm excited to share with you. On a lake, she is dreaming, she is drifting, never been so wide awake.